The next speaker we've got this morning is uh, Professor Sue Thomas, who's a research professor at the New Media in the Institute of Creative Technologies and the Faculty of Humanities at De Montfort University. And Sue was another speaker who attended Virtual Futures, I think, 95 or 94, and that informed her research interest. So let's find out where it's gone in the last 15 years. Thanks very much. Um, before I start, a couple of things that have gone through my head this morning so far is it was really interesting to hear Dan's account of those early days of virtual futures and quite cathartic for me because I was never quite sure whether I really fitted in there or not. I probably didn't. Um, but listening has just reminded me of something else, which is that what it did do for me, and I went to virtual futures in 95 and 96, was it made me feel, ah, oh, these are my people, even though at the same time I also felt a bit of an outsider. But it reminded me that when I wrote my first novel, Correspondence, which was published in 92, and while I was writing that book, which was about artificial intelligence, um, I didn't know anybody who was interested in the same things that I was in or was interested in computers in any way, and I was really isolated. Um, and even when it came out and it was picked up by the science fiction community, um, I still didn't really feel part of that either. And it, Virtual Futures was the first thing I went to where I thought, actually, yes, I understand how these people are thinking and they might you know, understand how I think. So it reminds me, this gathering today, that a lot of us who are working in those kind of transdisciplinary areas can feel really isolated. An event like this is fantastic for bringing people together. So I first came to Virtual Futures in 95, and that was when I encountered the virtual world of Lambda Mu in a workshop which completely changed the direction of my work. I came back in 96 with my colleague Simon Mills to announce the founding of the Trace Online Writing Centre. Simon had also been uh, here in 95 and had gone away and taught himself HTML and devised this amazing website in, in those early days. And we ran Trace, um, a global online community for writers, for 10 years. Now that's run its course and it's safely archived and I'm, I'm not going to be talking about Trace today. But Lambda Mu still continues to thread through my thinking about what it means to be online. I'll put these slides online, but there's the address of Lambda Mu. Um, it's not much used these days and it's become something of a historical artifact but you might want to consider logging on and trying it out for yourself. In today's multimedia world, this plain text is quite exotic. And I've set up the slides in, in as a, an homage to what Lambda, Lambda Mu looks like. I hope you find them a bit more restful. <laughs> so today I'm going to talk about how I encountered Lambda Mu at Virtual Futures, what I learned about it, and how it led me to what I'm working on now. For some of you, this will be new, and for some of you, it will be a bit of a blast from the past when you see the Lambda Mu screens. Um, so my main recollection of 1995 is a tiny computer room somewhere here where a small, dark-haired Australian with the unlikely name of Francesca de Rimini told us what to type in order to access a place called Lambda Mu. Within minutes of being logged on, I'd fallen into this strange environment, and by the time I climbed out again, somewhere around 1999, my sense of where I was and who I was had been completely reshaped. I still have a character at Lambda Moo, 
in fact more than one, and occasionally visit for a few minutes now and then, because although it's not part of my daily life anymore, I'm very reluctant to let it go. Part of who and where I am remain in that murky database. And it's no exaggeration to say that if I had not come to Francesca's workshop at Virtual Futures, I might never have encountered Lambda Mu. So thank you, Virtual Futures. In the 1995 program, you can find it, find in the web archive, mentions of this event, quote, throughout the weekend at the VF Web Nexus, Gash Girl, aka Australian performance artist Francesca de Rimini, proposes to run a day-night workshop entitled Cabinet Baroque, the construction of a thematically linked set of spaces on a moo. And that's the one I attended, sometime in the evening, I think. I remember going down some steps into a small, dark room full of computers. I think I sat on the right-hand side of the room. We followed instructions given to us by Francesca and typed into the darkness of the screen, looking quite a lot like what you see here. And we were learning what to type in order to talk to each other when suddenly the screen was flooded with the words of strangers and the text started scrolling faster than I could read it. And I still remember what an enormous shock it was to realize that there were other people somewhere else, Australia it later turned out, so they were somewhere else too, who were interacting with me live, who would reply to my typed questions as if they were right next to me in the room. Now, I want to emphasize that this was new to me, but of course it wasn't new technology in 1995. But by the time I had that first experience, people have been communicating online in real time for years. But that first moment of doing it, that first meeting, had an intensity which is hard to imagine today in a world of texting and instant messaging. I've subsequently taught a lot of people how to use Moose, and I've seen that same thing many times in those early days, that real shock of connection. It can jolt you into rethinking who you are, what you are, where you are in the world. So Lambda Moo is a virtual world which runs on a program called Telnet, a very simple text-based system that allows you to log into remote computers and type talk in real time with people around the world via this kind of screen. It also used to be used a lot to access public databases. You could kind of log into another university library as if you were really there. The programming code for a Moo was developed in 1990 by Pavel Curtis at Xerox Park in Palo Alto, California, from the code for a MUD first developed in 1978 at the University of Essex, England. I have to say that I originally published it was the University of Reading, and I got a very angry letter from Richard Bartle about that, so I stress it was the University of Essex. And for the geeks among us, I can tell you that it was written in Macro 10. Now, MUDs provide an online environment for sword and sorcery type games, and um, MUDs have already been mentioned today, or Dungeons and Dragons have already been mentioned today. Um, so I noticed that not so many people were familiar with them. Um, but the, the idea of a, a Dungeon and Dragon story is that the participants play out stories and adventures by adopting prescribed roles. Originally, they were generally done around the kitchen table, but Richard Bartle and his colleagues developed a way to do them online. So the characters inhabit worlds and they own properties which are realized through Telnet, enabling them to interact and role play in real time. Um, so in games like Dungeons and Dragons, just in case you're not familiar with that, 
you're given a character to play when you log on and various powers and so on and objects to go with it. Say you're, you have the power to be invisible or to own a magic saddle if you think that would be useful. And then what Bart and his colleagues did was to um, create this game not around a board in a kitchen ta on a kitchen table but on a computer network. So imagine that the forests and the castles that you fight and frolic in are pre-programmed and they're always there. So when you come back, you slip back into your character and you still have all of the things that you owned in the previous game. Now, MUDs depend upon a preset story. What Pavel Curtis did 12 years later was to add an element of object-oriented programming to the basic MUD code. This allowed users to manipulate objects in virtual space in other words, he took away the controls and let users create their own stories or more often just live their own lives. And instead of giving you a pre-designed identity, it let you invent your own. And you could make your own objects, rooms, furniture, pets, plants, clothes, food, anything that could be described in words, you could make with a line or two of code. Here, for example, is the command um, on how to make a room. Now, a room is just a space, but you can make it into anything. It's the space that you can go into. So you can make a room, and then you can turn that room into a field or a garden, as we'll see later on. But the verb for it is dig. Uh, what I did here was type help dig, and it showed me information on how to dig a room, a basic building command. Um, if I go back, I missed this slide. When you first log on, if you're a guest, you go straight into the coat closet, which is a room that somebody's built. And it begins with this puzzle. So you log on um, as a guest. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on. And the first room that you go into is the coat closet, which is written a bit like a, a role-play game, an RPG, and that you have to figure out how to get out of it. I won't tell you. I'll leave you to figure that one out yourself later on. So... Rooms. This is a part of, a part of the text of a room that I built um, a long time ago, which described the view on my way to work at that time. And you can see that I used a little bit of um, script as well um, to kind of make it look a bit more visual, but lots of people could do that much better than I could. This is the kind of thing that I would enjoy creating various different landscapes um, from various parts of my life and building them as a room in the mood that I could go and sit in and, and feel that I was in. So people built all kinds of rooms. They built homes, houses, everything you can possibly imagine people built. So what began as a technical experiment with object-oriented programming soon turned into a social experiment generating numerous questions. How do you behave in an environment where you can choose to be totally anonymous, create any kind of persona for yourself, and then live in it alongside hundreds of other people who are always do all doing the same thing? Now, I have to say at this point that this is actually my second draft of this paper because my first draft... I went off on that direction of a kind of identity play. I was thinking about the business we've had recently with the Syrian, uh, fake Syrian blogger and the way that this is still going on today. Um, and I put together a talk that was very much about the way that people play with gender identity online, which was very much part of early Lambda Moo life. And, and the work of people like Gash Girl was based around that. But at the end, I just thought, actually, I'm just not interested in this anymore. 
And I think that that whole discussion has moved on quite a lot. But I will say that one big difference, I think, between then and now is that whereas at somewhere like Lambda Mu, your anonymity was very closely protected. But today in somewhere like Facebook, if you're not you, it doesn't really work. You know, so I think there's an interesting discussion to be had there about what it means to have identity today and, and your kind of real versus your fake identity. Um, but I'm not going to go there today. And because of this freedom in its heyday, Lambda Mu was the source of many social and psychological adventures. Some of them were fun, some of them were very artistic, some were life-changing, and some were really quite a bit nasty. And after a while, journalists began popping in looking for stories, and academics came to write research papers. And at one time, there were so many social issues being dealt with that the place was plagued by academic researchers. And since every user is anonymous, unless they choose to say who they are, it started to seem as if with a preponderance of academic, academics, they were actually mostly researching each other, pretending to be native species. And there were lots of other muds and moos, and quite a few are still going, but Lambda was the mother of all moos, and it's certainly the most written about. You might want to Google, for example, Julian Dibble's article on a rape in cyberspace, to read the story of how mischievous behaviour at Lambda Moo upset a lot of people and resulted in very interesting legislative changes within the world. Now today life is much quieter there, but the legacy culture remains and the early dramatic struggles to find ways to protect both privacy and freedom, along with the right to take any form or identity, are still enshrined in its complex set of laws and behaviours which you can find out by typing help manners. And unlike the richly featured graphic worlds like Second Life and so on, Lambda Moo is still confined to plain text, which makes it digital heaven for anybody who likes to write. Um, we've been asked to talk a bit about how virtual futures affected our subsequent work. For me, encountering, encountering it resulted in a book, a travelogue of cyberspace called Hello World, Travels in Virtuality. I also wrote a novel. In fact, before that book, I wrote a novel. But when my agent couldn't sell it, I gradually realized that you can't really write fiction about fiction. And Lambda Moo is far too complicated to use as a setting for a novel without publishing an accompanying manual to help people understand what they're reading. In fact, it's much more like a foreign country, and so a travelogue seemed to be the best idea. Um, so instead, I wrote about travelling in virtuality. While I journeyed across Australia on a train, through America, up and down the UK, I wrote in my home in the English countryside, often sitting in the garden with a candle late at night, or gazing out of the window onto a road which had once been trodden by Romans. And the more I worked on the book, the more connections I saw between the physical landscapes I moved through every day and the virtual landscapes I visited online. And as I realized that, I became more and more interested not in the identity play or the art or the anarchy that takes place online, but in the ways in which we repeatedly construct virtual space in the image of nature. And that's why my next book is a collection of other people's stories, memes and metaphors of nature and cyberspace. I've been sharing some of those stories in various talks. A couple of weeks ago at Future Everything, I talked about um, why geeks go camping. 
Um, I've also talked about interesting connections between Douglas Engelbart and Tim O'Reilly and the way that they each deal with links and how that goes back to their childhood play. Um, and in the autumn, I'm going to be talking about the watery internet. Um, but today, I thought it would be interesting to look at um, some work I've done on Lambda Mu. And to that end, the next thing to look at is the formal garden. The RPG people amongst you will recognize the, the descriptions here in the compass points and instructions, which are very typical of an, a role play um, location description. So you're in a formal garden south of the main part of the house. Wide, gently curving grass pathways wind their way through the expansive grounds. The grass is lush and meticulously kept, etc., etc. You can read some of it there. Um, this is a long description, there wasn't room for all of it on the slide, but at the end it has a couple of instructions. You close the gate behind you, you sit down on the Victorian bench. Now, what you're doing here is you're admiring, you're in Lambda Mu, you're in this room, admiring a garden built only from text and being generated in real time by code from inside a server somewhere in the U.S., and on your screen, sentences scroll before your eyes like virtual ticker tape. The formal garden doesn't actually exist, but in a strange, strange immersive way, things are happening around you and responding to your code, your behavior. So you'll then see a line that says, a spider quietly works on her web in the silk tassel bush. Spider isn't real either, but it scrolls past you. As an experienced Moo user, you know what to do. You type at examine here to discover which commands will work in this room. And you discover that the garden flowers are perfumed. So you can type the command smell flowers. And the system immediately responds with the line, you smell a cascade of milk white saxifrage. The scent is lovely. Stimulated by the description, your imagination releases a burst of sweet odors into your brain. Of course, none of this is real. The formal garden, which is actually room hash 591002, was built by Yib's assistant, a.k.a. Elizabeth Hess, who wrote a book called Yib's Guide to Mooing, Getting the Most from Virtual Communities on the Internet. Elizabeth Hess is an experienced programmer and teacher, and she maintains two characters, Yib and Yib's assistant. She is herself, and she is her own assistant. And she designed the formal gardens in response to a challenge from another player to make a giant piece of scenery. This was in the very early days of Lambda Moon, and players were still adding features around the central mansion, which was actually based on Pavel Curtis's real home um, in Silicon Valley, just outside San Francisco. Um, so it, it was very much a home of the time, and of course it had a hot tub, which had all kinds of interesting features I won't go into now. Um, in her book, Hess tells the story of how the formal gardens came about. She talks about how, at that time, very little beyond the house existed. Now, remember, I'm talking about text descriptions. This, is, this, is, this could be the house. It's just a piece of description. And it's impossible, really, to map Lambda Mu, but as you move around, you have a kind of cognitive sense of where you are. And in this case, there was nothing much behind the house um, there was nothing south of the pool, and they felt it would be a good idea to have a new description, a new building. 
and since the description of the living room mentioned a view of the gardens through the windows to the south, she decided that she would make them. Um, and so she put together a description of a room, and her programming buddy with the exotic name of Klaatu had recently designed a seasonal animated room, which meant that it would run automatically through different elements of the seasons and it would have automated weather and everything else coming through as, as you sat there. And so she decided that she would take this code, she would build on it, um, enhance it, and add all kinds of animation messages like the smells of the flowers and so on um, to create this formal garden. She added extra touches so that visitors could actually pick the flowers and even take them away, all in commands. At one point, there was some anxiety when, just before she'd finished actually writing the garden, she'd not yet put it in Lambda Moo, she was working on the code. Another player called Green, who she says is one of the more flamboyant Moo's of the day, got permission to add a jungle in exactly the place where Yib was planning to put her garden. Very distressing. So instead, she connected it to a field some distance from the house, but she wasn't very happy. So she waited patiently, and eventually, as many players do, green stopped appearing in the moo. And after a period of time, if you don't log on, your character is reaped, which is the, the verb they use, is reaped, and all of the code which makes up who you are is put back into the database. So the minute that green was reaped, Yib jumped in there into the space left by the demolished jungle and put her garden in. I discovered, though, when I interviewed her, that this, this garden is not quite what I'd thought. I said to her, I, I interviewed her in the moo last year, and I said to her, I, were you a keen gardener? And she said, oh, no. She said, I just created this from a bunch of gardening books. She'd gone to books, taken out the text, and put them together to create the room. But she did, however, create another scene which she said was much closer to her heart, called the Green Cathedral. And she said, now that is a description of a real place, or a place that was real before houses were built over it. Here's the Green Cathedral, in a tiny clearing nestled deep in the woods, surrounded by beech trees. And she told me, the name came from the name of a clearing in the woods at a summer camp that she attended when she was young. The description is based on a very secluded, mossy clearing in the woods behind the house I grew up in, in Maine. So she was doing a similar thing to, to the things I'd been doing, is, uh, you know, kind of trying to capture beautiful landscapes and, and create them so that she could enjoy them, enter them in the moo. We were tight talking, talking together in the moo when she told me, and when she told me about this, she paused. Um, and sometimes you feel that in the moo, because sometimes there's a lag, there's a delay in the messages coming through. Sometimes the database is checkpointing and everything kind of freezes for a moment. But this felt like a different kind of pause, more pensive. And then she wrote, it's worth walking to or from. There were really nice exit messages. The path to the Green Cathedral was one of my favorite parts. So later, I logged on again to check it out. I typed south to travel, to travel south from the Green Cathedral. And there's a really lovely description here of the bushes seem to hug you as you make your way along the path. Um, you're in a forest of old growth trees and so on. And so, you know, she, this was creating something. This wasn't just a space. This wasn't just a piece of code. This was something that was very emotional to her.
And there are numerous rooms at Lambda Mu, some of them connected by pathways, but most of them just simply kind of float free in the ocean of data, which is in turn contained within a box, some kind of server somewhere in North America. I can't remember where it is now. And there are a thousand or more virtual locations. All of them are both real and not, here, not real. So in my research, I've been asking people the question more recently, if cyberspace were a landscape, what kind of landscape would it be? And by far the most common answer is watery. People say it would be like the sea, an ocean, a swamp. Bruce Sterling said to me it would be like a bubbling primal soup full of worms and viruses. Tim O'Reilly said to me it would be like an ocean because you can only see a certain part of it at any one time and you know there's more things there but you can't actually engage with them. Lots of people have given me those kinds of um, descriptions. And I've also been collecting metaphors of nature used in cyberspace and again many of them are watery such as this great example um, from J.C. Hertz, which coincidentally was published in 1995, the same year I came to Virtual Futures for the first time. And J.C. Hertz's book was called Surfing on the Internet. It described her pre-web student adventures as she rushes between bulletin boards, games, muds and moos, learning about the hidden and addictive 24-7 world, which at that time was mostly occupied by academia and the US military. She starts the book tumbling dizzily out of an all-night session in the University Computer Center, and she ends it with a dive into the Atlantic Ocean. By then, she's been transformed from a naive newbie into a total nethead. As her feverish account of life online draws to an end, she's starting to realize the huge significance of cyberspace and its relationship to the physical world. And so on the last page of the book, she writes, the online and offline world aren't staying in their boxes like I thought they would. They're bleeding together. So today I logged off at dawn, walked out of my apartment four blocks to the Blue Atlantic and jumped in. Wow, I thought, now this is bandwidth. Also in 1995, the data stream was considered to be an esoteric place for meditation. According to the Buddhist magazine Shambhala Sun, quote, cyberspace is frequently described as a feeling of complete and total immersion in which the individuals observe a self as thoroughly and effortlessly integrated and is at one with the experience of the moment. And when the user sheds their gear, that download of new information is dumped into the offline data stream of our everyday lives to become part of the path flow or cyber cycles of our lives. One of my favorite sentences, we download it and it downloads us and the cycle goes on and on, very 1995. But that's not so different from the experience of Facebook user Laura Banesh, who in 2008 posted a reply to the Facebook group called Where Are You Now? in which she said, my body is at home in Cordoba, but me, I'm flowing on the net. And the watery metaphors continue today. BT chief scientist J.P. Rangaswamy calls Twitter zillions of tiny rivers connected yet apart, whilst David Terra describes it as a twisty canyon with a fast-flowing river. Thomas van der Waal calls it a flood and a creek, 
And of course, many people use the metaphor of a stream, both for apps like Twitter and also for the larger flow of data. Chris Anderson wrote, we plug into the data stream as casually as we plug into the electric socket. So to conclude, we're finding all kinds of ways to bring nature into cyberspace. Give us a screen of black and white text and we'll create a garden in it. Log on to Second Life, you'll find it's full of handmade landscapes. Listen to the way people talk about their virtual lives and you'll find the language peppered with nature metaphors. I guarantee that in this room, at least 50% of laptops and phones have some kind of nature scene as a wallpaper or screensaver. And why is Farmville so popular in Facebook? These are some of the issues I'm looking at. So at Virtual Futures 16 years ago, I fell into Lambda Moon and I found rich landscapes built inside a database with nothing but code and words a powerful example of technology merging with the imagination to produce something both real and unreal. And if we meet again in another 16 years, I'm sure we'll still be talking about merging with technology, but I predict that the result will be more messy and more organic and maybe more slimy than we might imagine today. Why? Because my research has certainly shown to me that this is what we deeply want. We want to meld the green with the machine. Thank you.